Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 391 with Dr. Sean Jones. Sean is talking to us about burnout. He's got some great wisdom from experience and research. So you'll learn one, three ways people experience burnout. Two, how to repersonalize what you've depersonalized. And three, four best practices for preventing burnout. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, or the links to abs we've referenced, you'll find it over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F391. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some of our cool stuff. One of the newest cool things is a little drop down on the podcast section of the navigation bar, which points you to some new nifty things, including every episode tagged by topic and competency covered, links to some of the very favorite episodes, which are labeled A, B, C, D, E, F, and appear between episodes zero and one at the very beginning of this podcast feed and your player of choice, and handy little index to every gold nugget. So you can click to them all the faster if you are a Gold Nugget subscriber, which I encourage you to be. That's all for free and cool over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's Sean's story. Dr. Sean C. Jones is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat physician, head and neck surgeon with over 30 years of experience in medicine and a thriving ENT practice in Paducah, Kentucky. He's on a mission to combat the effects of the growing physician burnout epidemic by sharing his own inspiring story of recovery. Dr. Jones shares his story of burnout and recovery in his book, Finding Heart in Art, The Surgeon's Renaissance Approach to Healing Modern Medical Burnout. Big thanks to Sean for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Sean. Dr. Jones, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Pete. Well, I'm excited to dig into your good stuff. And uh, maybe we'll start with your story, which is, is pretty compelling. What's your tale when it comes to experiencing burnout? So for me, it really started one morning in retrospect when I was getting ready for surgery. And I was shaving, actually, and I recognized I wasn't feeling anything. And it really brought a sense of abject intellectual terror in the sense that I recognized I was experiencing absolutely no emotion. And I subsequently did what any well-trained, highly functional professional would do, and I ignored it (laughs) and uh, hoping it would go away. And of course, it didn't. It worsened. And part of my difficulty was that, uh, and I think the difficulty with burnout for a lot of people is it is a very disorienting Uh, experience. And so it becomes troublesome to try to figure out 
why you're not feeling quite right and what's going on. And actually, it was the assistance of uh, my wife, Evelyn, who nudged me to get some uh, help and to look into things. And that sort of took me down the road of getting some outpatient intensive psychotherapy. And I was subsequently diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder-related depression. And it primarily was work-related stress that that caused me to end up there. Hmm. And so, so tell me a little bit about the the work related stress. What was what was going on? I mean, PTSD you often think of you know in terms of like wartime or or, or trauma, tragedy, and and here it was it was work related. What was going on at work? Well, I, I sort of personally liken burnout to, in terms of the work related stress aspect of it, to sun exposure. You can certainly go to the beach and in one day get totally burned. But you can also, over a period of time, get small amounts of sun exposure that result in you, you know, having the development of a skin cancer or something else. So I don't think we recognize as uh, well the more chronic forms of PTSD, but all of us experience some traumatic things in our lives. And sometimes if we don't emotionally unpack those, I think they sort of always reside in the midbrain in a part called the amygdala that remembers those things, and particularly as physicians. We experience a lot of things that would shock or dismay or be an assault on the emotions and and other aspects of our personality for, for normal people. We're trained to deal with that, but over a period of time, it sort of builds up. And if I think you don't deal with that in some way, in a healthy way, and unpack that and process it in, in a healthy manner, then it can kind of rise up its ugly head and, and grab you. And that's what happened to me. And so... That's part of the whole purpose behind my book was to raise awareness about how, you know, you don't have to have a an absolute blowout where something huge happens. It can be sort of a slow leak that, that takes your, your energy and your enthusiasm for life away. Hey, well, so in your book, Finding Heart and Art, you know, what would you say is the big idea there? I think that knowing that a sense of presence and awareness about who you are and your purpose can really drive you to staying true to yourself. And it's hard to give yourself to anything, to your profession, to your family, to your friends, if you're not in possession of yourself. And so maintaining a connection to who you truly are and the true self is is part of that. And I think finding beauty in the world is is part of what helps keep us healthy in that respect. Interesting. So, you know, I'd love to to get your take then in terms of what are some of the the practices associated with getting that connection back and 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 keeping that connection strong proactively. So, the three primary ways in which burnout are, are experienced or is experienced is through emotional exhaustion, depersonalization and a loss of a sense of accomplishment in the work that you do. And particularly with respect to medicine, but a lot of work is so steeped in deep fundamental meaning, it's hard to figure out how in the world you would ever lose that. I mean, how could someone not feel a purpose or a calling or a real significance to doing, you know, that kind of work, whether it be fireman, policeman, you know, CEO of large corporation. And quite frankly, is that burnout envelops you and the emotional numbness takes over, nothing you do seems to matter. And so coming back to center and recognizing the truth of of who you are and why you were called to do what you do 
uh, is partially rekindled as a result of connecting to life again. And, and that is done through the emotions, which are the voice of the heart, according to the psychologist Chip Dodd, who wrote a book called The Voice of the Heart. They're not our heart, but they are the expression. The emotions are the, the voice of our heart, their outward expression. And so experiencing fully fear, loneliness, hurt, and being willing to do that, then you get the gifts that those offer you, which are the fullness of living in, in what is essentially a tragic place. And that connection to yourself, then you you think you can experience through the recognition of beauty. It might be for, for me, observing or looking at Renaissance art. For you, it might be hiking Elephant Loop Trail and, and Yellowstone. For another, it might be making a guitar. Uh, there are all sorts of ways in which we connect with who we are and, and become true to ourselves in an artistic sense. Part of that expression, I think, helps enliven us and enriches. And uh, it's one of the reasons those activities are referred to as the humanities, because they have a way of keeping us human. Well, so that's really intriguing here. So when it comes to, so you laid out three causes, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and the loss of the sense of achievement and, and significance. And you're saying that experiencing fully the not-so-pleasant emotions can actually be helpful and preventative for against burnout? Well, I think to a degree, if you think about it, all of those things that I mentioned, fear, hurt, loneliness, anger, guilt, they are part of being human. And one of the things that tends to happen when we experience them is we don't, we don't like them. We don't like the feeling that they bring. And so we want to pack them away and, and not deal with them. And over a period of time, that emotional detritus, if you will, builds up and, and we, you know, they are going to have their say one way or the other, but dealing with them allows you, for example, if, if your foot hurts, it might be because you have a cut on it, recognizing that hurt and addressing it and bandaging it, caring for it brings you the gift of healing. And so each of the emotions are like that. They have a gift that they give you as a result of their full experience that you deny yourself if you aren't fully willing to enter into them. Part of being a surgeon, for example, is, you know, emotions don't help me a lot when I have an emergency operation to perform at two in the morning. So we're trained in a sense, and rightfully so, to take our emotions about the experience of that moment and set them aside. I think sometimes, certainly I did, got so good at setting them aside, I never got them back out again. And I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing a, a really a, an epidemic and burnout amongst physicians is because we haven't been historically trained to get those feelings back out and look at them. And I think that's one of the reasons a lot of us are are having difficulty with that now. Well, and I'm curious to, to get your take on in terms of, in practice, what does that look like in terms of what, what you do? In terms of, okay, I put an emotion aside, and then later on, you know, I've got some some quiet, some opportunity to work with it. What do you do next? And I think that's really important because we know that there's a lot of data that suggests that isolation and being alone is dangerous for human beings. We all crave connection and relationship in whatever form for each of us that takes. And living in community and having someone that I, with whom I, I have a, a trusting relationship to unpack those feelings in a way that can be beneficial to me. Even sometimes, you know, nobody has to fix anything per se, but 
to just listen to what I experienced and acknowledge, you know, the grief, the anger. Yeah, that really sounds like that was difficult. What was that like? Wow. And just having that connection with someone, I think, is is really beneficial to experiencing the gift of having those feelings. And and then, as we talked about before, being true to who you are, sometimes we get so busy and there's so much screen time and, and busyness and every day we never stop to take account of, of where we are and what we're doing and being truly present in the moment. And uh, mindfulness is one thing that has been shown to be really beneficial and in helping to be able to center in that moment and, and be aware of, of what you're actually experiencing, which makes it really helpful to come back later, even if it's necessary, and, and unpack those feelings again at a later time. And so when you say mindfulness, uh, are, are we talking about meditation in terms of just you know sitting quietly and returning your thoughts to breath, or, or how are you thinking about mindfulness? Well, I think there are a lot of different ways you can, you can do that. Mindfulness-based stress reduction was popularized by John Kabat-Zinn, an emeritus professor at uh, the University of Massachusetts, who has created a program there. And he essentially studied Buddhism, and as he would describe it, I believe, in paraphrasing, took the trappings of the religion or, or Buddhism out of that and used mindfulness as a way to center on the breath or other types of things that helps your pulse rate and, and does all sorts of beneficial things from not just your ability to monitor your body, but it has also been shown to do some really interesting things like uh, Richard Davidson, a professor at the University of Wisconsin, has demonstrated that never before meditators do 10 minutes of meditation three times a week for three months compared to the same group of non-meditators who don't meditate. If they're given a flu shot, the meditative group has triple the antibody response to the flu shot that the non-meditating group has. So it improves immune function and it has all sorts of benefits, I believe, that we haven't really ferreted out yet in terms of research, but it's really been probably one of the most beneficial things to come out of uh, neuroscience research, in my opinion, in the last 10 years of some of that data that talks about mindfulness. You can also, for instance, talk about meditative practices that are within the spheres of religion that some people would have more comfort with for a lot of different reasons. And that is, you know, the Desert Fathers are of the Christian stripe in, in that sense, like St. John of the Cross, the Cloud of Unknowing. Rumi was a Sufi mystic who uh, meditated. And so the, there are lots of traditions. All of them seem to have uh, benefits to them, but meditative practices in general are very good at being able to discern and to let go and to be present in the moment. That's a real nice lineup there. And, and I've, I had not heard the study about the flu shot. That's, that's fascinating. So we talked a bit about the, the emotional piece. You know, what do you mean by depersonalization? A classic example from medicine would be to speak of a patient in, um, in a very impersonal way, like the gallbladder in room 247. And while in some respects, depending on the circumstance, that might be appropriate because of HIPAA and other things like that, that tendency to not relate to people as on a personal basis but puts a distance between you. And I think in that sense, the 
electronic health record in medicine has been a, a severe impediment to that when you know you hear stories of patients going to see physicians and the physician the whole time they're in the examining examination room are typing on the computer. Yeah. That is not a human-to-human interaction. And I think the same sorts of things are happening in corporate boardrooms around America where people are on their phones and not present, and I mean really present in board meetings and things of that nature. The technology that is meant to connect us is actually disconnecting us in many ways. Right. And so then in terms of your your daily workday experience, what are some sort of simple ways we can bring the the personalization back into it? Well, I think a lot of this really requires intention. I have to set out with purpose on a daily basis to live my life a different way because it is so easy to get caught up and swept away in the moments and movements that occur to us when we're very busy. And so I think starting the day with purpose, even if it's just five or 10 minutes of some meditative uh, or centering prayer practice is really helpful because it sets the agenda for the day, just like you would if you were going to set the agenda for a phone call. You know, when you feel yourself getting out of control and sort of losing and being distracted, meditative practices will help you be able to take a moment, breathe, remember what you set your intention for that day, recenter yourself. And that helps you, again, to be present, to not live in the past, not live in the future, but be truly present in the moment, which allows you to respond to situations and particularly crises in a way that is more appropriate for the the subject uh, and the event at hand. I think those are two things that are really important. The other thing I've personally really tried to work on is what I think people refer to as mindful listening, and that is making sure that when someone else is speaking that I'm looking them directly in the eye and I'm listening intently to their words and not planning on my response or what I'm going to say or how I'm going to interject. So I think those are three things that really help to make a difference on a day-to-day basis. Now, when you you set an intention, what does that sound like in practice? So today I'm going to make sure that I'm not going to be distracted. I'm not going to try to multitask. I'm going to be on task during the day. I'm going to listen intently to people. And if I feel myself starting to, you know, become angry or to even respond or behave in a way which I'm not inclined to want myself to be like, then I'm going to stop and pause. And, and be intentional about taking control of that moment. And just knowing that and setting that intention during the day, you know, sometimes I'll be in the middle of a day and it'll all of a sudden hit me. I need to stop here for a second and, and sort of recenter myself and, and do what I said I was going to do today because I feel myself, uh, you know, rising up in, in, in an emotional way in a sense. And I think that really helps because sometimes you can get carried away. People will come up and they'll say something, oh, Dr. Jones, you're really going to be angry about this. And before mm-hmm. I even hear what the issue is, you know, I'm already like, yeah, I'm going to be angry, you know. <laughs> and it sort of, uh, it helps to kind of take a breath and, and make sure that, you know, you, you're being you and present in the moment. Absolutely. I also want to get your take on the, the lever there or the, the factor that loss of achievement and significance, uh, do you have some thoughts for keeping connected to that when you're in the midst of, of work? That is a 
was very difficult for me because I, I completely lost my sense of purpose uh, to a degree. And somewhere deep down, I knew that I'd always wanted to be a physician. I was one of those kids that uh, even though none, no one in my family had been to college, I knew I wanted to be a doctor when I was five or six years old. And I never wavered from that. So deep down, I knew that was really who I was. But I just wasn't feeling like I was accomplishing much of anything. There wasn't any sense of satisfaction there. And mostly it was because I'd lost myself. I had become detached from my inner emotional environment in a sense. And and so I think finding that purpose is great. The last thing I think anyone ought to do when they're feeling burned out is to make a quick decision and change jobs or get out or, you know, I think it really is important for people to take stock of what's going on and try to get some uh, perspective on it. And because I think for me, at least the purpose was there all along. It was, it was the way in which I'd engaged that purpose. And I thought by working harder, longer, faster, more that I would find it again. And actually I needed to do just the opposite. I need to step off for a moment, take a rest and, you know, re-examine that and find me because compassion is the recognition of suffering and the desire to do something about it to alleviate it in another human being. It's it's pretty normal, natural human response to suffering. But when you have compassion fatigue, which is part of that burnout spectrum, you lose the sense of your purpose. and, And so having that compassion rekindled and recognizing that you can only give what you have, it's really important that you have yourself to be able to give of yourself. And many of us need to have more compassion with ourselves because we become very negative in our self-talk and and uh, that is unhelpful in developing compassion towards others. So um, compassion is contagious. And I think the more that we extend compassion towards others and towards ourselves, then the more experience, uh, compassion we're going to experience. Well, yeah, and it's, it's funny when you talk about your, when you're feeling sort of under-resourced, you know, tapped out and you have, you're less likely to act compassionately. That reminds me of the the study of the the seminarians who had to turn in a paper, I believe it was about the the story of the Good Samaritan. And uh, half of them were, were told that they were were late, and the other half uh, was not. I imagine you you've, you've encountered this in your work. And then they they encountered someone who was just coughing tremendously, like you know, in, directly in their pathway. And and those who were told that they were running late or, or that the the deadline was was very near, with the alarming frequency, just totally blew right by the guy. Versus those right. who did not feel they were that rush were able to stop and help. And, you know, and these are seminarians who had just recently, <laughs> you know, covered studied the, story. the good Samaritan. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I think sometimes once we get headed in a direction, how hard it is to turn ourselves about. But that's a great example of of what it means to actually put into practice what logically you've put into a different part of your brain. And so when you're compassionate with yourself in the midst of negative self-talk, what does the, the corrective or, or compassionate response to 
It's like, oh, I screwed up. I'm such a moron. Oh, I did it again. He's like, oh, why can't I ever get my act together with this? You know, kind of whatever. So there's the the beat up self-talk. And then what does the the intervention self-talk sound like? So there's a loving kindness meditation. uh, And actually there's a a free ebook called Compassion Bridging Science and Practice uh, that's available. If you Google that online, you can pick it up. And it it was developed by uh, a combination of... uh, some of the best neuroscientists in the world. In fact, it was at the Max Planck Institute in Germany uh, in cooperation with Buddhist monks who underwent functional MRI scanning, and it's got videos and tutorials. But loving-kindness medica- uh, meditation essentially is I, I feel uh, good, I am uh, good, I want the best for me, I want the best for other people, I you know, desire only what is good in life and want to extend mercy and compassion and grace and and really, it, it sounds almost too good to be true. And the first couple of times I did it, you feel kind of foolish looking in mm-hmm. the mirror doing that sort of thing. But it is amazing how that comes back to you at times when the negative self-talk will begin to pop up. And, and there's a, really a plethora of data that suggests that those who have a, a greater profundity of negative self-talk are more susceptible to burnout. So it, it really is important in terms of, of trying to mitigate against the effects of burnout that you work on some of those things. There are basically two ways you can try to affect burnout. One is by uh, increasing your resilience. And those are the things like mindfulness, based stress reduction, making sure you get plenty of sleep, eating correctly, exercising, all the things we know that we need to be doing and and be diligent about in terms of our discipline. But then there's also decreasing the work-related stress, you know, making sure you set aside time to do the projects you need to do and in a concerted way, being intentional about what you want to do during the day and not being distracted, making sure you limit your screen time as much as you can. Uh, And even with me, I know that's difficult because uh, screen time is important for the electronic health record. But doing the best we can to mitigate the things we know that organizationally cause stress, because Christine Maslach, uh, who's done as much work on burnout at a corporate uh, level than anyone with Michael Leiter, wrote a book in 1997 called The Truth About Burnout, How Organizations Cause Personal Stress and What to Do About It. And she said in that book that burnout is an organizational problem. It's not a failure of of people on an individual lay, uh, level, it is a, an organizational issue. And and so addressing it at that level is much more complicated and much more difficult because the things I'll tell you to do in a hospital to decrease stress and burnout might not work at Procter & Gamble, for example, or other uh, Google and Apple and things like that. So it, it's going to be more a generic recommendations about how to decrease stress. So it makes it more difficult to make application in, in each individual sense from an organizational standpoint. Well, nonetheless, I'll take a couple of generic recommendations. If, if uh, folks find themselves in a leadership capacity, whether it's for, you know, a couple of direct reports or for thousands, what are some of the, the generalized best practices to, to help prevent the burnout? So there's an interesting study that says that Americans, more than any other uh, culture, generally don't take their vacations. Yeah. So I think one of the things that really would be important, like, you know, 
have your people take their vacations. You know, it's important for the work you do here for you to have time off. And we give you that time off and we want you to take it. It's not a negative and you're not going to be a hero by not taking your vacations. I think that's, you know, a pretty, uh, pretty simple one to institute. And then be really willing, you know, as we talked about earlier, to listen to people about the things that cause organizational stress. With physicians, for example, and this is true of other leaders, if you allow um, one of your best workers to do what he thinks is most important 20% of the time, his risk of burnout is reduced three times. So you can have him doing things he's really not as interested in 80% of the time if he can do what really charges him up at work 20% of the time. So finding out what people really are interested in and want to do in their job that fits their job description, the purpose of management and organization, in in my view, is to fulfill the mission of the organization, but to allow people the room and the space to accomplish that task while fulfilling the mission of the organization. And sometimes that's simply getting out of people's way and not micromanaging because that feels a lot of times like mistrust. Like right. you don't think I'm able to do this job. And so you're going to tell me how to move the widget from A to B and B to C when I've got a better way. And what's also intriguing about that 20% guideline is that, you know, that person may very well have a clearer, more accurate, astute perception of what truly is most important than the, you know, the leader or the manager in terms of, so it's not just work 20% of your time on whatever the heck you kind of feel like doing and, and playing Candy Crush on your phone, but it's like, it's projects related to the organization that you find to be important. That, Absolutely. That's pretty, pow- pretty powerful. Yeah, and I'm sure Candy Crush is important somewhere, but it wouldn't be in most places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm researching the competitors on uh, yeah. addictive app best practices. <laughs> Cool. Well, Sean, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I think that being really interested in ways to remain healthy in general is a way to incorporate this idea about burnout into your daily life. Most of us have an idea of the things we want to do on a daily basis to remain physically and, and otherwise healthy. And, and this would just be putting another piece of that into that, that pie. It doesn't take a lot of time. It just, again, takes some uh, decision-making process and, and some intention. Mm-hmm. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I really think that one by Cynthia Borjolt is compelling to me. What the caterpillar calls disaster, the master calls a butterfly. Mm, Thank you. And what I like about that is there's so much that we do not have control over in this life. And so things happen, and many times we react to that in in ways that reflect our our dislike of, of what's just occurred. But we don't know how the story ends. And many times when we look back, what we thought was really a horrible thing that happened to us in our life turned out to be one of the best things that could have ever happened. And so I think it's important to recognize when we're in that moment to realize there may be something else at work and to be open to those possibilities. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? So the one about the the meditators with the flu shot response uh, is one. But there's another one in kindness research where... Uh, a researcher took 
a blue and a, and a pink elephant, and he presented them to very young children, 18 months and younger. And the first elephant, the blue elephant, would a duck would try to open a box, and the elephant, every time, would jump on the box and keep him from opening it. And then they would show a video with the, the uh, pink elephant, and every time the duck would try to open the box, the pink elephant would come over and help him open it. And 95% of the children, when presented with both elephants, chose the pink elephant. And what that says, in essence, is that all of us are attracted to compassion and kindness. And that's what we innately are born with in many respects. And it says something that I think about the heart of human beings and the recognition of what we all desire in a certain sense and what we're attracted to and what we want to be. And it, to me, it, it really makes me feel hopeful for the world. Yeah, that is very powerful. I'm going to be chewing on that. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? A favorite book. I've been really enamored with historical biographies, and I would say that um, Washington Irving wrote a biography of George Washington that was thoroughly researched. And part of it is how well it is written, and the fact that Irving knew contemporaries of George Washington that were amazing. But the character and integrity of George Washington is absolutely astounding in, in reading the book and the kind of man he was and the kind of uh, the way he comported himself in different situations, absolutely courageous, was spellbinding for me. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool? I think for me, mindfulness is my favorite tool. I, it has in many ways transformed uh, my daily life as well as my inner life uh, in a way that uh, has been so helpful for me in so many respects. So for me, mindfulness would be that too. And a favorite habit? I enjoy exercising. And uh, believe it or not, if you saw me, you wouldn't think I liked powerlifting because <laughs> I'm um, 5'10 and about 175 pounds soaking wet. But I really like deadlifting and squatting and doing uh, Romanian deadlifts. And uh, there's a lot of data that suggests that as you age, maintaining muscle mass and functional strength uh, improves your overall health. And so uh, I enjoy doing that a couple of times a week. It really uh, helps me kind of unwind. Can I put you on the spot and ask about uh, the weights that you're lifting? Sure. And and I will do my best not to uh, make this a fish story. And, uh, <laughs> I will tell you that I was in a gym not too long ago with a friend, and he was lifting what he thought was a really great deadlift, like, deadlift weight, like 350 pounds. And, and a gentleman came over and said, are you finished with that weight? And he said, yes. And then he uh, picked it up and did bent over rows with it. instead of <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're, we're not at that level. But at first we thought, well, this is really good. But uh, yeah, my max deadlift is around 350. So. All right. Nice work. Nice work. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and, and resonate for folks? I think the idea that we all are attracted to the beautiful things in life and what beauty means to each of us is, is different. And one example of that is if you look at the Renaissance masters, the early Renaissance masters, their idea of beauty was perfection. You know, Nicholas Poussin, if you look at his paintings, there's no dirt, there's no grime. Everyone is perfect. They're, it's just beautiful 
but it is a different aspect of beauty than if you look at the later Renaissance and the Dutch masters such as Rembrandt or Caravaggio, where there is realism there, there is darkness and light, and 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 mixed in with that is the beauty of the relationship between the people and the paintings, like for example, the return of the prodigal son uh, of Rembrandt. It is astounding how seemingly grimy and dirty and torn the clothing can be, and yet it overall is aesthetically so deeply moving and beautiful. And I think that's a reflection of life. We have to look for the beauty in everyday life, and if we look for it, we'll find it, and it will astound us, and it will enliven us and enrich us. But we have to look. Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? So my website is uh, Dr. Sean C. Jones. Dot com that's s h a w n uh, for Sean and they can follow me on Twitter Twitter at Sean C Jones MD and you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs I think setting the attention and if you've not tried uh, mindfulness or some meditative practice it is very easy to start and there are a couple of apps even that that will do it as much as I hate pointing to technology. Last night, actually, on NBC News, there was a story on Headspace, but there's also one called Calm, which is very good, uh, which is a great way to start without having to go to a class or do anything uh, where you're putting yourself out there. Well, Dr. Jones has been uh, just, it's been profound and beautiful. So so thanks so much for for taking this time and, and good luck and in, in all you're doing and helping to heal medical burnout and, and your other adventures. Well, I appreciate it, Pete. Thank you. It's been great to be with you. I really appreciated Sean's take about how we often have the need to put our emotions to the side for whatever situation. Maybe you're a surgeon, you're going to go in and cut somebody open. You you can't be sort of focused on your other emotional things. You got to be totally focused and dialed into the zone. And we forget to pick them back up later again and work on them a bit, process them, have a good chat with a buddy. And I think that is some wisdom there. I have been guilty of that myself. And it really can creep up on you over time if you continually put it to the side and forget to to process it. So great stuff from Sean. I encourage you to do all the more processing of those emotions you've put to the side and to reconnect with the heart and the good things that flow from it. So the show notes, transcript, and links to items we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F391. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. First, we're gonna have a little Martin Luther King a quick reflection since many people are not working on that day. But then on the Wednesday, we'll have Austin Belsick, And he has got a really cool, unconventional approach to job hunting, to land the job if you are seeking a job. He's got something real special. So hope you catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. 
Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 